Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We're going to take a look again at Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and uh, we are doing message number 5, I believe it is, from the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, and we will begin our reading today in verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, we are in a section called the Antitheses. A thesis, of course, can be written. It can just be a position that someone takes, a proposal someone makes. So we named it this. The word probably doesn't fit it completely like it should, but Antitheses is a way that Jesus taught here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, wherein he said, you have heard the thesis, but I offer an antithesis. I come to you. And he's not really against what we've heard, but he says, I want to take it to a whole new realm. You've heard it said of old that thou shalt not kill, but he said, I tell you, or murder. But he said, I tell you when you become angry. And we looked at this one last week. He says, you've already committed murder. We looked at the word here for anger, the word uh, orge, which is two types of anger. Thumas is the quick, just uh, belligerent, out of nowhere fit of anger. But orge is a kind of anger that's more passive, aggressive. And it was so important. I know we talked about it many times, but so important that we get that. This is the kind of anger that has to be nursed and it has to be cared for. It, it'll grow dim over time. So you have to refresh it. You have to keep bringing back to mind how badly that person did you or how mad you are at the church. You know, you can be angry. A lot of people are still angry about things and they can't even remember what it was about. Uh, they don't even, it, it, it's like they let it die. And that you got you to nurse this. You got you to gotta keep it alive. And, and so this is that kind of anger. And it eats you alive over time, and it will finally destroy us. And, and, and someone has said that it's like being stung to death by one bee. Just every day, that one bee just will not relent until he stings you enough till you die. Uh, so we talked about that last week and Jesus gave us a teaching about that. He helped us to understand that murder is not committed with the hands, but in the heart and how dangerous that is. He takes us on to adultery. The next one in verse 27. Now remember, he's already told us the first section of the sermon was the Beatitudes. He said the kingdom of God has a whole different set of values. We think differently. uh, We see things differently. We react to things differently. We can't do it without God's power, but we do not think like the world. And the world would look at these things, and let me just tell you, there's a great time for a soul check. If you see these things and read these things with us and say, man, that's just ridiculous, That's not how I'm made. That's just not who I am. That just can't ever be like that. It's a great time to look at your heart and say, well, am I part of the kingdom of God? Because I'm never going to tell you, well, it's easy if you're part of the kingdom of God. No, it's still impossible. But God helps us to do that, and we are able to do it through His power. But I can tell you, if these things sound too strange to you, let that be a warning. If these things sound odd or impossible or ridiculous, if somebody strikes me on the cheek, what am I? I'm supposed to just stand there. If if that's all you see here and and you don't get what Jesus is really saying, it may be a foreign language to you that you just simply cannot understand. So think about that because this is for the kingdom. The world's never, ever going to get this, never going to embrace it. It will always be a bridge too far as far as they're concerned. Let's look at number two. He did the sixth commandment 
about thou shalt not murder, now he is going to do adultery. And he'll be just as brief with this one. If you look back at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, lo na'af, just two words. That was always in the Seventh Commandment. No adultery. Just, just no adultery. <laughs> he didn't get into some big long spiel about what that means and what it doesn't mean and when is it okay and when is it not okay. Can it be forgiven? What is our reaction to be to it? When do you get the divorce? How do you react if it happens against you or whatever? He just says, no adultery. But leave it up to us as human beings, and especially when we look at the Jews who were very religious human beings, to take two words and to overly complicate it. Jesus says, let me clear it all up for you. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's always been a question, and it's a kind of a ridiculous one that's unanswerable, really. But sometimes I've had guys ask me, well, how long can we look? And some will say, well, here's the formula. It's not the first look. It's the second look. Well, I can tell you, I'm depraved enough. I can get a lot out of the first look. You just give me time. So it's not about the second look or the third look or any of that. I'm being transparent with you, men. It, it is, he is making an entirely different point. Basically, I guess close as we could come to what he is saying is once we've looked long enough to activate those passions within our heart, we have looked too long. So Jesus is condemning us men for using our eyes to purposely stimulate our lust. And this goes for women as well. And then he gets to the part that the world is just never going to get. He says, I even tell you, verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now think about this. Your right eye is key, believe me, uh, to not stumbling in the physical realm. Watching, seeing things. I, I know I can't shut up about it. I just wish. It, it's almost like when you get saved and you want to explain it to people. I wish I could just tell people, you just don't believe how good I can see. I forgot the last line of that song we were just singing. And I raised up and looked at the back wall. And for the first time since I don't know when, I could read the last line of that song. Now, that's with one eye. You just wait. Boy, a week from tomorrow, I get the other eye fixed, and I am going to be something. But I wish I could just tell people, you just won't believe the difference that it has made and how clear things are. Our eyes should help us to not stumble. But just think about it. Something as good and as useful as our eye, it can be ruined to the, part, to the place in our lives that we need to get rid of it because it can cause us to stumble. Our depravity can take something as useful and as good uh, and as valuable as our right eye, and it can absolutely ruin it. It can take away its innocence from our existence. And that, that's a, a terrible testimony about humanity, but it's the truth. He goes on, verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He is not making any uh, uh, shortcuts here when he says it's not that you die and lose your reward or you get a second class place in heaven or, well, you know, somewhere along the way, God, you know how he is. He loves us all and he's just going to forgive us all. He says, no, you'll go to hell. You will go to hell if you live that kind of rebellious life. He says, but in the kingdom of God, we have to be willing to take something that is as useful as a right eye or a right hand and get it out of our lives if it becomes detrimental. Now, I want to say two quick things 
about what we will call spiritual surgery. We know one, he's not speaking literally because you can gouge out both eyes and still have a problem with lust. You can cut off both hands and still wind up being the meanest person in town. So we understand all of that. But spiritual surgery simply means that we can take things in our lives that may be innocent, they may be useful, they may be good within themselves, but if they become a problem, God says get ridiculous about it. We always say this, but it's worth saying again. If you need to get rid of the Internet, get rid of the Internet. And don't look at that as like, well, I just think that's silly. If you are seeing a relationship at work that's brewing and you can't get away from it, it's better to change jobs. That, see, that wouldn't even make sense to people in the world. Oh, I'm not going to. You can't run from temptation. You better learn how to run from temptation because it's already caught up with you, sounds like. So get ridiculous about it. Quit the job. Go somewhere else. Do something else with your life. In relationships, unfriend people on Facebook. I, I found out recently that I have a lot of robots. My son tells me that's what these are that just are in love with me. I saw your post. They're so interesting. And, and, and I'll guarantee you, there are guys out there going, wow, she looks really good and she's interested in me. How about that? She doesn't have a clue who you are. One, she doesn't even exist anywhere, but in your mind, somebody made all of that up. But boy, that triggers something inside of us sometimes. I'm just saying, if you can't deal with it, get it out of your life. Unplug the cable television. Whatever it takes, it can't be more ridiculous than cutting off your hand. And I've been just dying to preach this verse for three years, but... but it can't be more ridiculous than gouging out your right eye. It, 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 God says, take whatever measures you have to to get away from that. It's painful. There's no doubt. But it is also profitable because he said in verse 30, he said, it is, it's better for you. It's the right thing to do because he said, if it offends you or causes you to stumble, and that's our word scandalizo. Scandalizo means the trigger or to trigger a trap. And we talked about this too, I know, but again, it is not the trap itself. It is the trigger, the little round thing in a jump trap, if you know what that is, or the little things that hangs down in a coney bear trap. Or, and some of you may not be up on your traps. So I'll give you a week to work on that. But I can tell you that it's the trigger. And as long as you don't touch the trigger, you're fine. So it's not the trap. It's what is triggering that. So it might be something in your life that within itself it's fine, but there is a trigger involved there. There's something there that is causing you to fall. It is scandalizing you. It is ruining your testimony. It is ruining your walk with God. Whatever that is, it has to be dealt with. Number three, he talks about divorce. He said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, a little history. Where does it say that? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses, Moses finally told the men among the children of Israel, he said, quit just sending away your wife and saying, we're divorced. Because that's all it took. Just wake up one morning, the toast is burnt, and she's gone. Out of here. I'm tired of, tired of wheat coffee. You know, I wanted one egg fried, one boil, one scramble. You scramble the wrong one. I've done it. It's, I'm done with it. You could really divorce her that easily. And when he sent her away... She could remarry, but if that guy divorced her, then the first guy that she had no business being with to start with, but she had no choice, he could go back and get her and bring her back home. He could say, hey, I saw my old lady the other day, and she's lost weight. She's been going to the tanning bed. She got highlights in her hair. She looked pretty good. I think I might just go get her and bring her back. And it put these women in a terrible situation. 
So let me tell you about this writing of divorcement. Don't stop reading, Matthew, because when you get to chapter 19, Jesus will say again, Moses gave you that writing of divorcement idea because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not so. So he was trying to circumvent a disaster. But I can tell you, he says this, and, if you, and, and we can go through this and do exactly what the Jews did. People do it all the time. I can't think of a passage I've had to explain more to people than this one right here. Because they go to digging in here and they go, well, I'm divorced or I'm thinking about getting divorced or whatever. And I need to know this about it and that about it and start picking it apart. This is the 80,000 foot view, friend, and Jesus has just given us facts. As a matter of fact, if you want to know how God feels about divorce, don't come here. Go to Malachi. Start there. Because it says, I hate divorce. God says, I hate divorce. And so understand that. And, 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 and don't treat divorce as, well, we got a way out. And the Bible says, well, if this happened or that happened, then I'm justified. And man, I'm asked all the time that, really. Can, am I justified in being divorced? And if I wasn't and I am divorced now, what am I going to do? And it goes on and on. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to circumvent here. As a matter of fact, if I've seen this happen more than once, if people would invest as much time in the marriage as they do the divorce, the marriage might work. Because when you go to get a divorce, you start spending money on professionals. And you sit down and talk about problems. And you start maybe for the first time finally expressing what was wrong and what got on your nerves so badly and, 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 and what the real problems were and all the hurts and all the pain and all of that. And you got all of these people involved. The only problem is the ones that you get involved and call in to help you have no regard whatsoever for the marriage because they're not getting paid to keep you married. They're getting paid to get you out of the marriage. And I would also say this, quit thinking that, man, one day I hope I find the right one, Pastor. That's what I call the love lottery, where you're thinking that, man, I'm going to finally, I just left to meet the right guy. Let me tell you, and I mentioned this last week, man, guys, she's not the one because you married her. Or she's not the one because you found her. She's the one because you married her. It's not that, oh, I finally found the right one. I finally found somebody that we connect with and blah, blah, blah. And we both like the, uh, uh, the Charlotte Panthers. Good Lord, help you both. That that's, probably won't make it, just that. But whatever it is in, in, in your life, you just feel like, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come in the office and they want to get married and, they're young, and, and boy, they, how, they're so clueless at that point. And, and she's sitting there smacking on some chewing gum going, we both like the Pittsburgh Steelers. We didn't even know that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my Lord. This has got atomic bomb written all I hear it ticking now. Because here's the thing you don't understand. It's the places where you are alike that's going to cause 99% of the fights in your life. It's where you are different and complement each other. That's what brings you together. There are a lot of differences that Loretta and I have, but we complement each other together in that. But boy, the hard-headedness is something that we both have. She's got a lot more than me, but we both have some of that. It'll be those areas that cause you the most problems. But go back to what I said. Women, he's not the right one just because you reached in a jar full of candies and pulled out your favorite. He's the one because you make him the one. You love him. That's what makes him the one. It is not like there's somebody out there, if I could just find him, no, marry the one. Recommit yourself to the one you're already married to. 
and love that person the way Christ says love that person and get over all this giddy romantic foolishness. I'm telling you, it's not that there is no romance in marriage, but it does change and most people never ever survive the change because when it gets to the place in your marriage to where some days all you have left is the commitment that you made to each other, you could just, boy, just mm, pull your own hair out and, and it gets tough. I can tell you those days come. Not, not with you, honey, but some people have that problem. He says he honors marriage. He said in verse chapter 19 of Matthew, he says, He only wrote you that for the heart because of the hardness of your heart. Verse 32, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, and that word is pornea. It's not the typical word for adultery. There's a whole lot there to unpackage. But he makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. He is going back to that whole shebang that was going on in the book of Deuteronomy. We don't need to forget that. Committing adultery. Marriage today is, man, it's, it's an institution that's taking a beating. And, and, and I want to just say this before we move on. The real question here is not whether or not God allows divorce. The real question is whether or not God forgives divorce. So understand this. When I preach and we get on this subject of divorce, I'm not preaching to divorced people. I'm preaching to married people thinking about divorce. Because God will forgive divorce. He, like he forgives all other sins. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, it wasn't my fault. Well, you need to work on that some too, <laughs> because I can tell you, I've had people come to me before and say, well, you know, I've been married five times, really, and want to get married again, but now I just, it never was my fault. The first one ran around, the second one, whatever, the third one, this, that, and the other. And, and I usually wind up telling them, look, one thing was your fault. <laughs> you chose the wrong one five times. Let's try not to make it six. It's a sin. And it's wrong, and God hates it, and I don't care what happened. God hates divorce. Got it? But he forgives it. He's trying to clear it up. He's trying to take what the Jews had just gommed to death with all kinds of easy outs and, 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 and little details that they could use for their benefit, he's trying to fix all of that. Verse 33, he deals with honesty or taking oaths. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. <laughs> now, he is telling the Jews a lot of things here that they already know. But there were two ideas about telling the truth. One came from the school of Hillel. That was, uh, the, that was an old rabbi. He was pretty open and liberal in his teachings about telling the truth, getting divorces, and all of those things. They had another ancient rabbi that was different. Shammai was a rabbi that he was very, very strict. As a matter of fact, it says in the school of Shammai, if you were one of his students back in the old days, said you were so wedded to the truth that they forbade that if you were at a wedding and the bride was plain, you could not tell her she was beautiful. Now imagine that, going to a wedding and say, i got to tell her she's ugly. Wow. I don't want to be the one doing that. But that was the way that he looked at it. Well, they got in a big tiff. Oh, well, if I swear by something, though, and especially God, that brings God into the deal. God becomes a participant in this promise that I've made or this truth that I'm telling. 
Jesus clears it up. He says, but I say to you, make no oath at all. Just stop there. Make no oath at all. Never have to buttress your yes or your no with outside influences. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And let that be the end of it. Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. God is basically saying, I'll summarize, you don't have to involve my name in the transaction. I'm already involved in it. If you swear by heaven, that's my throne. And he goes on, or by the earth, verse 35, for it is a footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath even by your head. I swear, you, and you hear these things all the time. I'm, I'm not sure the, uh, the old mafia used to swear on their mother's eyes. I, 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 I don't know. I, that one, I missed it. I wasn't in the mafia long enough to learn what that meant. Or I swear on my mama's grave. Or I swear to God. God says, leave me out of it. Because one, I'm already involved. Everything you would mention in your oath you're about to take, I already either own or I operate fully. It is either my throne. You're never going to swear by anything that's not already under my control. I love this one. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. This was back when hairdos were monochrome. How about that? Because today he'd have to add some more to that, right? Or purple, or green, or sparkly, or lavender. He says, you can't make one hair on your head white or black. Now, you might be thinking, well, no, I, I go to my cosmetologist and she can. No, she can't. Remember the last time you let the roots go too long? We noticed that hair is still as white as it always was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You just put some color on the outside of it. So it, 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 you didn't change the color of the hair. Quit swearing by things like that. God says, let your yes be yes. As a matter of fact, literally in the Greek here, it says, let your yes be yes, yes, and your no be no, no. And let that be the end of it. He repeats both of them. Man. I remember uh, a story told about Abraham Lincoln one time where he was in a debate and they were talking about truth. And he says, well, what if you have a cow? And instead of calling his tail a tail, you call his tail a leg. Then how many legs will the cow have? His opponent said four. And he said, no. Or his opponent said five. Man, my math is off today. That's incredible, isn't it? His opponent said, well, he'd have five. And Abraham Lincoln said, no, he'll have four because you can call his tail anything you want it to be, but it's always going to be a tail. And that's a great message for us today. You can call it whatever you want. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. We live in the age that if you don't like who you are and you feel like you should be somebody else or something else, you do whatever you want to do. That all works out in the world. But once we come a part of the kingdom of God, I can tell you there are a lot of those crazy, fooly, empty, weird options that we no longer have. Let your yes be yes, yes. Your statement, he says, be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this, he says, is evil. <laughs> you know, parents, sometimes we teach kids that yes can mean a lot of things and no can mean a lot of things. If we're not careful. You know, my kids are grown now. So now I can start back preaching on how to raise children. But I will tell you this. I think my kids both grew up knowing when daddy says no, it's no. I didn't have a loud no. A lot of parents, that's the no that means no. Remember? No! Or maybe add a curse word to it. You know, don't tell preacher Mike, but 
Maybe add, add some expletives to it. That's your no. What no means no. And this counting business, one. If you're going, where are, you, where are we counting to here? Five? Then that means you've just taught your child that one through four mean absolutely nothing. Don't tell your kids things that mean nothing. Your child is sitting there, and you might look at them and go, well, what part of no do you not understand? Well, I hadn't heard the loud one yet. I hadn't heard the one where you threatened to go get daddy yet. I haven't heard the no where you stomp your foot and get really mad. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And parents, we are the first ones to teach those things to our children. I had to put this in there. No pinky promises. I'd never seen a pinky promise until, and it really happened. Not, I'm not making it up, I swear. Just kidding. But I was counseling with a couple one day, and they had been in the worst fight in the world. I'm serious, I can tell you their names. So it, and they had had it out, and they were ready to get a divorce and everything else. He was drunk. She was mad. And I was sitting right there in the middle of their living room. Well, they finally started coming together on things. I don't know if the liquor was wearing off or her patients were finally not quite so thin. But, boy, they decided they were going to try again. And we were all serious. And I was talking about different steps they could take and books they could read and all of that. And I will never forget the way it all ended. His wife reached over to him and says, We're going to try again, aren't we, honey? Yes, she said, pinky promise and I knew then hallelujah we've hit pay dirt this couple's gonna be together forever of course they weren't no pinky promises say what you mean mean what you say in the world you can back it up with all kinds of stuff but he says in the kingdom of God he says I want my people to say yes and mean it and say no and mean it Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and a tooth for tooth. This is the lex talionis, the law of the tally. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the first time we ever see this, and lex talionis is Latin, but the first time we ever see this, con this, this concept goes all the way back to the first Babylonian empire. We're talking about in the days when the Tower of Babel was built. They had a king named Hammurabi. He was an Amorite king. He ruled over the first Babylonian kingdom for a while. And we actually found, and a lot of you remember this from school, I hope, but there was a stone like a pillar that was several feet tall, and it had the code of Hammurabi written on it. And, and it had laws, and it was the first code of law from the ancient world that we had ever seen. And we found this on there, the, the, the first time we ever heard of the eye for eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, if you come to the Jewish times by the New Testament, they had what they call the Bava Kama. Now, the Bava Kama was part of, here we go, and you can tell when I move over here, we're going somewhere, right? Remember, they had the Talmud, which explained the Mishnah, and the Mishnah was all the 613 commandments that they had finally put on paper that up until then no one even knew but the scribes who had memorized them. And the Mishnah was the 613 commandments that elaborated on the 10 commandments that God gave them. Now we got to go back over here, but I need to exercise. The Baba Kama was called, it was, it was, it's a Hebrew or Aramaic for the first gate. And there was a whole section in one of the Talmuds about tort law. Uh, I'm a long ways from being a lawyer, but I know that tort law has to do with restitution. We get our word torture from it. It all has to do with the word tort. Tort actually means something that's twisted or something that has been wrung. And in medieval times, this is the way that they would find out the truth. I'm not sure what y'all are doing over at the courthouse now, Steve. Maybe you're just asking them and they're telling me. I don't know. I doubt it. But in ancient times, they would put you on a torture rack. And it, boy, they had some other stuff. I read about some of them yesterday. 
man, I can't even mention where it goes and what it does, okay? But they had a ton of them, and this is what they believed. How would you like to live in this world? That if you succumbed to the torture and you cried out for mercy, you were lying. But if you could endure the pain, they would figure you're telling the truth. Wow. Man, I want to tell you something. I don't want to live in a world like that because some of the stuff I saw pictures of yesterday, I believe I'd be confessing to something I might not have done. But it was part of torture. So, now you've got to understand something. Jesus is trying to help us realize there's literal practice and then there's loving principles involved in all of this. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the Jews did not even hold to that specifically because you've got to remember, actually, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth originally meant that you couldn't exact more than was taken from you and leave it to the Jews to put together the baba comma so that if I ran over your cow and killed your cow, you couldn't come and kill one of my cows that was better than the cow I ran over. You couldn't hit kill my prize bull if I just ran over your old dried up milk cow heifer. Okay, so you had to get into all of that. And so the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was, it has to be a good eye for a good eye and a bad eye for a bad eye. It, you, you can't get carried away. That's where we get our word retaliation. We want it retallied. I don't think that price is right. Have you ever been given a receipt or told the amount somewhere? This happens a lot nowadays at the grocery store. You know, you pick up a loaf of bread and a bag of cookies and some ice cream, and it's $5,270-something dollars. And you're going, man, I'd, I'd like a retaliation of that. I'd like to see a, a, that total again. There's no way in the world that can possibly be right. Be careful with that. They may charge you even more. It's crazy nowadays. But Jesus says this, but I say to you, stop calling for retaliations. Stop looking for an eye for you. Wow. He says, in the kingdom, the world can do it all they want to. They can gouge out eyes till they're all blind. I don't care. But he says, in the kingdom, but I say to you. And by the way, if, if, you were, if we were looking at this in the Greek, we would see that you is at the first of the sentence. So it's not but you. It's but you in regard to opposition to them. But you do not resist an evil person. But whoever stops or slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him, the other to him also. Now, this is a whole lot less about physical. And it's more about justified retribution. If you start into this thing and you start going down that path of literalism like the Jews did, I've had people tell me all kind of things. Well, they slap you on the right cheek. You didn't say let them slap you again. So the, slap, the second slap, buddy, I'm clearing leather and I'm going to drop him where he stands. It's so ridiculous. That's exactly what Jesus is telling. He says, in my kingdom, we don't deal with stuff like that. He says, I am telling you, the point I'm making is when you have justified retribution before you, you could sue them. You could get mad. You could hate them. You could have backed your car into their car. You could have ran your buggy into the side of their door on their Maserati or whatever. You could have done everything. It's when you were in the right and you could do whatever you want to do, but you refuse to do it because even though you could, you won't because you want to represent who you are in Christ. You're too poor in spirit to do that. You're too much of a peacemaker to do that. You're too meek. Remember meek? Strong, but control. He says, that's the point I'm making. Uh, so let's don't get into the, well, if he slaps you on one side, he didn't say he could slap you twice. That's not the point he's trying to make. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have also your coat. You might have different words for this, but the shirt or the tunic 
was worn inside this big coat. It was the long shirt that men would wear. Usually go down to their feet. And then on the outside of that, they had what was called a cloak. It was a big coat. And he says, if they come to you, and there's a little history here we have to understand. And they sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. You could sue a man, and you could take his shirt from the Old Testament. But Exodus chapter 22 says, if he owed you money and you sued him, and you took his tunic, he usually had two of those, you could also take his cloak. Exodus says that. But Exodus says, but by nightfall you must give him back his cloak because he's got to have somewhere to sleep. And a lot of those people slip outside. All the, the only thing they had to sleep in was that big old cloak. So he is talking about a legal matter here. You could sue somebody and you could take their tunic and you could keep it. But you couldn't sue them and take their cloak. Jesus says, look, 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 look. Just get away from all this eager litigation. He said, if they come to you and they sue you and they want to take your tunic, he said, give them your cloak also. Go above and beyond. Surprise them. Love them in a way that they're not willing to love and care about you. Seek peace to the point that it seems ridiculous. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Back in the days when Jesus was alive, Roman soldiers, as a matter of fact, this, this deal forced his uh, to go a mile. There's a word here that is an old Persian word that meant courier. And a Roman soldier might need something taken to another town. And they had a law at one time that you could go one mile and there'd be a place there that you could stop and get water or whatever and rest and then it would be marked off by another mile. The Persians did their roads that way. So a lot of this is coming into play. He might can compel you to go one mile. He says if he does compel you to carry a package one mile, carry it two miles. Carry it two miles. And, and I think a great illustration of this is so much we can talk about, but this very same word is used when Jesus was carrying his cross up Calvary's hill. And a guy named Simon felt that old flat spear of a Roman soldier lay onto his neck. And they told him, says, you carry the cross for him. Now they would only carry the cross beam to the execution site. But here's a guy named Simon from Serene. And he carries the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want you to think about this. Boy, what an opportunity. Would you not take that up in a heartbeat? Now, knowing what you know about Jesus, would it not be an honor for you? Man, I'd have been jumping in there in front of him saying, I, I, I get it. If I can help my Lord and Savior carry this thing up that mountain, I'll be honored. This will be the most sacred piece of wood I've ever had my hands on. I wouldn't give this up for nothing in the world. But as I was thinking about that, I thought, I do have the opportunity to do that. Because he told me to take up my cross and to follow him. And here's Jesus, who's the Son of God, creator of the universe. And they slapped him more than just his right cheek. They ripped out his beard. They scourged him. Now, think about that. He's God. He could have stopped it at any time. I, I could get mad. You and I could bow up and go all redneck on him. Hey, you just, yeah, slap me one more time. If you ever watch cops, you'll know people in handcuffs and leg restraints in the back of a car still threaten 25 cops have no problem with it. We could do all of that. But the creator of the universe could have said, you've touched my beard one more time and I'll send you to a galaxy far, far away. But he didn't. I can carry that cross. I just need to carry mine. And there are days when I may be in the full right to take revenge and get what's coming to me.
make it right. Show them what for. Let them know they don't mess with me. You don't talk about me. You don't talk about my children either. I'll tell you one thing, there'll be some hair pulling going on. Well, he says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Learn to love them. He says, you have heard it said, and this is our last one. We'll look at it quickly. You have heard it said that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's pretty simple. But the scribes and Pharisees, once again, you remember when Jesus confronted them with that? They said, well, who is my neighbor? That, that Jesus had to have rolled his eyes when they said that. You guys don't get it, do you? I make something as simple as love your enemy, love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? He says, you've heard it said to love your enemies or love, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I'll close with this thought today. The word for love here is agape. Don't take that as, boy, God wants us to really love them. Like agape is a more intense love. No, it'll have to be agape. Somebody that is your enemy this is not some silly little saying Jesus come up with. It's not something that we can just ignore as ridiculous. It's not something we can say, well, one day we'll be in heaven and we'll be able to do all this. No, 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 no. See, he knew, yeah, there were four kinds of love. Sturgo was family-type love. He says, you're never going to love somebody that hates you, burns your house down, kills somebody that you care about, a drunk driver that plowed into your family. You're never, ever be realistic ever going to look at that person like family. Eros wouldn't work either. That's an attracted kind of love. You're probably never going to look at that person again as long as you live. That butchered somebody you loved or cared about or stole something for you, you may never look at them and be attracted or want to be around them or be buddies with them. God knows that's impossible. And then the other kind of love was phileo, and that's a brotherly love. You're never going to treat a person like that like a brother. Somebody that's hurt you that deeply, somebody that was that careless, somebody that don't even care, somebody that didn't even repent, they sit there in court like they had done nothing, and your loved one was in the cemetery. You are never going to look at them like, yeah, yeah, be like a brother to me. There's only one kind of love you can use for this. Agape. That's a love that is not attracted. There's nothing there to desire it. There's nothing there that makes you want to do it. It is a selfless, willing, only by the power of God is it possible that you would, with agape love, care about someone that had done you so terribly, terribly wrong. He says this, he says, do these things so that you may be sons of your father. This goes all the way back to verse 22, I believe it was, verse 21. He says, remember your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, well, there you got it. You were wondering what that meant. He says, now you know. And I got to tell you, I prayed this morning early. I said, God, I want to be like this. I really do. I, I have a hard time with things sometimes. I, and, and anger, I, I don't have, I don't really have a lot of problem with that. I'm, I'm I don't know why I got plenty other issues, but all of these things that he's talking about here, man, I want to be like this. Because he says, you will be sons of your father. 
You remember what son of meant? It meant you were the epitome of. The thing that will make you like God is to do these things. I thought about Genesis 3. And I thought about what the serpent told Eve. He says he knows that you will be like God. Man, if we want to be like God, we have to have our lives transformed by the grace of God. And he has to implant in us his power to love people that don't love us, to care about people that don't care about us. Man, his own disciples, they struggle with these things. You remember James and John? They got in an argument about could they sit on either side of him, not knowing that when they crucified Jesus Christ, he had guys on either side of him. They were dying on crosses. So if I, I want to be like him, and I do want to be able to demonstrate to the world that he has put a power inside of me. I can love you even if you don't love me. Even if you don't care about me. Even when I have every right in the world to absolutely go off on you. You have a legal leg to stand on. I could take you to the cleaners. I want to be the kind of person that can say, but I'm not going to. It wouldn't accomplish the will of God. And it wouldn't glorify him. I want to love like I've been loved. And I want to give like I've been given. And I want to care for others like he cared for me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I pray you would help us, Lord. I pray, God, that you would forgive us where we fail you so miserably. So many areas in our life, Lord, we have excused or found some loophole, Lord, whatever it might be. I pray, God, that you would forgive us. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us now. Help us to take a fresh look at your word and realize and know we're in this world, but we're not of this world. And what looked ridiculous to us when we were of the world, God, has to, has to look different to us now. Lord, I pray you'd help us. Help us, God, like only you can to be what you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.